With each one of them, of course, there is this theme. King of all, servant of all, man, God. Those are themes. But beyond those themes, there are certain focal points. There are key words, there are key verses that emphasize that. Things that, in essence, will help you to be remembering where uh, things are uh, in a particular book. So, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, since we've gone through that all, but uh, what was, do you remember what the focal point was? And what I mean by that, again, was kind of the one thing we kept coming back to in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me give you a hint. It was... Kingdom of Okay, well, and that was more of our theme, or that's right into our theme, but it was like a location, in that sense, or something that you would keep... There were five of them. Why well, is going to make it rough on you now? The hill. Does that sound familiar? There were five specific hill moments in the Gospel of Matthew. See, once I, I tell you, you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course. I, at least that's what I'm going to comfort myself. <clears throat> Can anyone tell me any of them? Give me those specific moments. Okay, excellent. The, the Sermon on the Mount which is one of the new conversions, so it's a one of conversion. You're right. Excellent. Any others? Can you remember? Transfiguration. What's that? Transfiguration. Excellent. That's also one. Right. So that's two. Okay, excellent. The, the one of the cross. Right. Excellent. So that's, our, that's also one, of course. There are two others. You're actually doing them almost in order, except cross ones. There was the one of when Jesus taught the Sermon of the End Times. That sounds familiar? And he did it up on the Mount of Olives. So that was our fourth of the five. Uh, that's right, that was our third. So it started with Jesus going up on a hill and teaching the Sermon on the Mount. That was the first of them. The second then was when Jesus was transfigured. Obviously a pretty radical experience. Again, up on a high hill on a mountain, I think. The third, then, when Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, when he teaches the end-time sermon that we know is Matthew 24 and 25. Then, Jesus dies on Calvary up on the hill, if you will. And then finally, does anyone remember the last one? You know, interesting, there isn't an ascension in Matthew. That was a great guess. Excellent. Taking them back to the beginning, that mount that he had prepared for them. Very good. So that's our five from there. And again, with each one of these, there's going to be something we kind of keep going back to. And we'll kind of call that the focal point. Uh, that focal point then for Matthew was the hill. There are three basic sections of a gospel, time periods, if you will. Do you remember what those time periods were? The first is the Galilean ministry. That's, his, that's the first of the three sections. Does anyone remember the other two? You guys look scolded. Right. On the way down to Jerusalem. Excellent. That's the second. And then the third. Excellent. That last week in Jerusalem. Now, remember in Matthew, the, the primary aspect of that is the time in Galilee. <coughs> We're going to see even more so that in Mark. Matter of fact, over half of the Gospel of Mark takes place in that first Galilean ministry portion. That's where Luke, from 952 through the middle of 19, that's a lot, that's 10 chapters, are dedicated to the walk down 
from Galilee down to Jerusalem. The majority of these. As where in, in John, the emphasis is going to be that last portion where Jesus then um, is always referring to the feast, by the way. I mean, you just you see it in almost every chapter. But, and certainly, actually, in one way or another, you do. But by chapter 13, he's already there, and he's getting at it. By 11, he's actually already there. And that's huge, 11 out of 21 chapters. I mean, and that's like his last week. That should tell you something. Now, all of that to say, let's, uh, let me do this. Uh, Marcia, these are for you from last week. So you aren't missing anything. And then let me give each of you one of these. Oh, Daniel was in here. But he didn't ask you to say Take one of these. Yeah, I can find some. Are we recording? Yeah, we are. <laughs> All of that was just. Matthew overview. Oh. <laughs> the hills of Matthew. Mm. Um, so I'm going to tell him and then there should be a marked one. Um, I give a preface one, and then I do one when I keep it. Thank you. You're welcome. You know what's going to happen? You guys are going to go, oh, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying to myself. I know right now you kind of have to warm up your brains again. Mm-hmm. I recognize that. There's a book right there. Okay. Are you ready for the gospel, Mark? <laughs> Remember, I'm going to teach you through the first portion. We'll take a break. Then... We will, uh, then we'll take our test. Verbally, everyone gets to jump in. You're all a team. And then I give a basic brief overview of Luke to prepare you for your reading this week. Remind you, it's a lot longer of a book than Mark is. All right. Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the books, by far, by the way, uh, in chapters and in words, for what it's worth. But it has the most action per capita. Uh, remember how we break things up into those three areas? Can you tell me those three areas again? The first was the Galilean ministry. What's the second? Trip down. And then what's the last one? The last week of Jerusalem. Now, for what it's worth, it's important to recognize, and you see this slot on here, right? So you can kind of keep your eyes ready for those things as I go into them. Uh, as it breaks down into those three sections, for what it's worth, it's important to note that the Gospel of Mark has only 3% of it is unique. Different, by the way, from all of the other uh, Gospels. Again, uh, Luke will be 35 to 50%, by the way, and 94% of the Gospel of John, by the way, will be unique. That tells us a lot. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, by the way, uh, will emphasize, again, that area of the Galilean ministry. 56% of the book is dedicated to that week. I'm sorry, to that time, those, those uh, ministry in Galilee. The writer. Well, we do know, of course, there's always that hint in, in Mark in 14, 51, and 52, where it talks about a young kid getting arrested or escaping naked. But nobody really, you know, obviously God never told us who that was. 
And we do know this much about him, by the way, that he, his mother's name is Mary. From Acts chapter 12, verse uh, 12, it tells us, by the way, when he had considered this, that he came into the house of Mary, the mother of, of John, whose surname was Mark, where there were many gathered together. So, by the way, mom hosted the house in Jerusalem where many were gathered to pray. That's what it tells us. There was a prayer meeting that took place regularly in their house. That is important to recognize. Um, it tells us, by the way, in Colossians 4, 12, or 4, 10, that when Paul's kind of saying, everyone's saying hi, it says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, of whom you receive respection if he comes to you, welcome him. So that tells us the relationship he had with who was the cousin to Barnabas. Now, listen to this, uh, Acts 12, 12 again in regards to Mark. When they considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Let me ask you, Mark was not his first name. What was it? Right, excellent. John was his first name. Mark was his surname. So it's important to kind of note that. Uh, it tells us, by the way, uh, Barnabas was it. Now, they go on. What we have in their ministry is that because uh, because Barnabas and Saul, before Paul is called Paul, were set apart to go out and do this ministry, Barnabas wants to take his cousin with him, John Mark. As he went to take John Mark with him, uh, they make their way through Cyprus, which, by the way, was where Barnabas was from. As they head to the southern coast of Turkey, John Mark bails. Now, we do not read why. But it tells us he goes back to Jerusalem. But we do know something that's in Jerusalem for John Mark. What's in Jerusalem, as far as John Mark is concerned? His mom. Yeah, that's one thing. You know what's interesting? It's not going to say the house of John Mark's dad. I think that's interesting. We don't ever read of John Mark's dad. Was he there? Was he not there? Was he there and kind of not involved? Or was he completely gone? Was he dead? We don't know. But we do know that mom was kind of prominent. For what it's worth, John Mark goes back to Jerusalem. The assumption is he went back to his mother. But what happens ultimately is that once Paul and Barnabas want to go back and check on the churches that were planning on that trip, the argument becomes over John Mark. Because Barnabas wants to take him. Now, Paul, on the other hand, has no interest in taking the guy. Cause, and that tells me, by the way, that however it was that he left, he didn't leave with Paul's blessing. Now, for whatever it was. And because of that, Paul really is not interested in taking John Mark with him on the second trip. And that, it tells us, and this is a beautiful British expression, there was no small contention. Now, where I come from, that would mean they were about to throw dogs. They were getting, they were yelling, they were screaming, they were about to push, they were about to, to fight. But because it's New King James, and that's the revised version, if you will, of Old King James, which is British, we say it is, there was no small contention. <coughs> that means there was a big one. Well, with that, ultimately they part their ways. And we've said it before, but for the purpose of it, who's right, who's wrong, they both are right and they're both wrong. I mean, Barnabas, we know he's called, he wasn't given that name. His name is Joseph, but he was given that name by the disciples, and the name means son of encouragement. We might say Mr. Encouragement. That's important. Because he's a real encouraging kind of guy. He's a people person. Paul's very much the works kind of guy. He makes sure that the operation's running right. So both of them have a legitimate case. Barnabas, you can see the argument. Barnabas is like, we're supposed to restore people. 
this guy may have made a mistake, but we need to give him a break. <coughs> Paul says, I am not going to risk the ministry on somebody that I cannot trust. Now, Paul wants to make sure there's integrity in the ministry. Barnabas wants to make sure that people are actually not being left behind. <coughs> I think that every ministry needs both. So they part ways, which I do believe is what God ultimately wanted anyways. Barnabas will head to Cyprus. Paul now will take a new group of people with him. And when, Paul, when Barnabas leaves, he takes with him John Mark. So Mark was, in essence, the reason Paul, uh, Barnabas and Paul split. Well, that and their pride, however you want to put it. But ultimately, he was the point of contention. Now, in the later ministry, though, we do know this. In 2 Timothy 4.11, what we realize is that Mark seems to have reconciled with Paul. Because Paul will say, hey, by the way, would you get him and bring him here? He's useful for me. So Paul seems to have reconciled with Mark. But in 1 Peter 5, it tells us that Peter is saying, hey, by the way, Mark, my son, also greets you. Which tells us somewhere down the line, Peter seems to have spiritually adopted him. So he went from going with Barnabas and Saul to being dissed by Saul, but going with Barnabas, to ultimately being reconciled with, with Paul, but also somewhere down the line seems to have been adopted by Peter. But who better? Imagine John Mark sitting next to Peter and Peter's going, what's going on? And John Mark goes, you know, I was, I was in the middle of this ministry, and I caved. And I, I caved in, and I kind of fell apart, and I kind of went back. And you could see Peter going, oh, I totally get you on that. That's exactly my story. So you could see how the two of them would have really gotten around. And that's why a lot of people do believe that John Mark was interviewing Peter for the gospel of Mark, for what it's worth. It doesn't say that, but that's what a lot of people believe. Okay. Anyways, the recipients, on the other hand, they appear to be gentle in nature. And I'll tell you, there's basically four reasons for it. Gentile. Did I say gentle? Or did it say gentle? Maybe they were gentle, too. But they were gentile by nature. And those reasons are, number one, is that the Jewish traditions are explained in this book. So when you start seeing something, they'll say, well, this is kind of how it would work. The second is that Aramaic words were translated. Now, Aramaic words, for instance, Boanerges, when Jesus calls the twelve, two of them, James and John, he calls Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Important to note, by the way, unique to this book. You wouldn't even know that if it wasn't for this. When Jesus is raising the little girl in Mark 5.41, he says, Talisakumi, and it says, which is translated, little girl arise. In 7.34, he looks at a man who was deaf and mute, and he says, Ephasa, a fun word to say. You try that one, E-P-H-P-H-A-T-H-A. Ephasa. And it says, which is translated, be open. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, I believe is what it is, he, Jesus says, Abba, and even there, Mark tells us, be father. When Jesus is on the cross, and he says in John, I'm sorry, in Mark 13, 1534, he says, He'll say, which is translated, my God, my God, why is I mean, he makes clear of these things, and ultimately even tells us of Golgotha. Now, all of those things, by the way, the Ephasa, Talitakumi, Bonergis, and Iloi, Iloi, translate, those things are unique, by the way, to this particular text. I think that's interesting. Third, by the way, is the use of Latin terms. Ruthie would, I wouldn't say she would love it for that. Now, here's the thing. You wouldn't know that, to be honest, by reading it. 
uh, in the English. But if you were to read it in the original language, you'd go, wow, that's interesting. There's an awful lot of non-Greek words added to the text. Well, that would, it would sort of stick out, yeah, for what it's worth. Uh, you know, I mean, some of the words we get, like census and centurion and that kind of thing, but otherwise. And then the fourth is that he tends to quote from the Septuagint. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Septuagint is, yeah, S-E-P-T, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T. Roughly 400 years before Jesus came on the earth as a baby, the the commander of the time, the Greek, I'm just trying to figure out the best words to use. The Greek Empire was running and running strong, and the leader of the Greek Empire demanded to uh, the Alexander Egypt, which was the largest library of the world, to have every book that exists translated into Greek. So they took 70 Jewish scholars who could speak both Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and had them translate the entire Old Testament as we know it into Greek into a single book. And septas means 70. So it literally means the 70. So it was the 70 men, and they, the rumor is that it took 70 days for them to translate it. But that's the thing. So all that means is there's a difference in some of the wording. But if somebody who's quoting from the, the Hebrew Old Testament might say something a different way than you would if you were quoting the Septuagint, the Greek New Testament, the Greek Old Testament. And, and with that, the particular verses that are quoted are often very much with the Greek inflections, for what it's worth. All of that to say this, that the recipients basically appear to be uh, Gentile in nature, uh, and you see these are the basic reasons why. As far as the miracles, Half of the first ten chapters are miracles. How fun is that? A third of the entire gospel is actually miracles. And that becomes something really fascinating. Obviously, Mark is um, really, really wanting you to know this is our book of action. And if I'll say it, if I can say this politely, let's say you're seeking to have a ministry, you're seeking to have a Bible study with someone, and they tend to really veer from, say, the academic world. They're not really thinkers as much as doers. The Gospel of Mark's a great book for them because it's full of action. It's less teaching, per se. It's the smallest amount of teaching per book, and uh, you know, it's the most amount of action per quota. As far as specific words that will be used, their focus, uh, one of those things, of course, is on those that are needing specific service the details of them. And what we're going to find is, whether that's the way that John the Baptist served and what he ate and what he wore, or the specifics of religion and Mark 5, or the child at the bottom of the hill after Jesus is transfigured, there's a lot of development into the need for service. So we spend a lot of time on those details. I do like that. Um, second in regards to that is the word immediately is used in Mark Actually, to be honest, if you count it all the times immediately what's used in the Gospel of Mark, it's roughly a third of the entire Bible. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. When Jesus was in Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, the end of the synagogue and taught, immediately his fame spread, immediately the fever left, the one Jesus touched was Peter's mother-in-law. Um, immediately the man with leprosy left him and was healed or cleansed. Immediately 
By the way, the man that was a paralytic arose and took up his bed and walked. Uh, when Jesus came out of the boat, immediately the men, the man at the tombs. And we're going to find that. And that's a key thing when you're looking at, for instance, hint, nudge, wink. We're looking at a test. Immediately, though it is used in the other ones, I remind you, it is dramatically and drastically greater use in the Gospel of Mark than the others. In fact, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very radical difference. So, just a third of the total Bible uses of the word immediately? Yes. Yes. There's an immediacy in the need to serve. There is an immediacy in the response to his service. And there is an immediacy in his opposition, just so you know. Immediately the Spirit will drive him into the wilderness. Immediately the Pharisees plotted with the Herodians how to put him to death. Immediately... Uh, when the seed is planted, immediately Satan comes and tries to snatch the seed away. When there's not those that don't have root and then trials come, immediately they stumble. Um, immediately, by the way, when Herod was drunk from his birthday party, immediately she, the daughter Herodias asks for the head of John the Baptist. And immediately then the executioner was sent to behead him. There's an immediacy to the opposition. And I think if we recognize that there's an immediacy to the opposition, there needs to be an immediacy to our service. We can't just be like, oh, I want to get around to that. Because the danger of getting around to it is that the opposition will show up quicker than you will get up out of your couch to do it. And there becomes the problem. Now, the focal... Yes? Okay, sure. Well, there's an immediacy in the need there's an immediacy in the response and an immediacy in the opposition. Now, let me ask you, again, the focal point of Matthew. What was it again? The thing we kept going back to? There were five of them. The hills. Excellent. Matthew keeps taking us back to the hill. That's the focal point. Mark will focus on the multitudes. We will keep going back to the multitudes. And one thing we're going to realize is if we read Mark with the idea of servanthood 101, the need is immediate, but that once you realize that you can actually help be a need meter, the crowds show up. The need is not only immediate, it is vast. The need is great. And when we go through them chapter by chapter, as we're about to, that's what you're going to see. You, I, I'm convinced what, as we walk through, you're going to be like, wow, I don't know if I realized how many times and how heavy it was, how Matt, Mark really keeps taking us back to that crowd. He keeps taking us back to the crowd. And here's the thing. Even if you didn't know that, and you know that he kept taking us back to words like multitude, is there a weird feeling about that? Because what do you know happens to the multitude by the end of the Gospels? They turn on them. They turn on them. That's right. They're the ones saying crucify them. And there's the weird part, because if Jesus knows that, it never stops him from serving them. That's a crazy thought. Think about how much we do to protect ourselves. So... The key, in the simplest sense, we might say, is the immediate crowd. While we're like doing our test, for instance, when we hear the word immediate, unless there's something else that stands out, default to Mark. When we see things focusing on the crowd and the result of that crowd, 
Though, again, it'll be in other ones, but not to this dense. Clearly, it's going to lead us to Mark. Key verses. There are three of them. Mark 9.35, where he tells the twelve, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark 10.43, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Mark 10.45, two verses later, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You get it over and over and over. Now, a couple quick keywords, and after that, we will start preparing for the book. Keywords, by the way, and he told us this is a if you're really going to be a servant, this needs to be involved, and that is the word gospel. To give you an idea, the word gospel, by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, is not used at all in the, in the Gospel of John. Matthew does it five times. Mark mentions them eight. Luke four. Which is interesting because Mark's the smallest. So I remind you. And yet, he almost had as many as the, uh, all three of the others combined, which is easy when John had none. Uh, and it starts, the first verse, by the way, will be the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It starts with that. You're not going to miss that. When you read the word gospel, like believe in the gospel as the result of the gospel, this is the gospel, it's easy to default to Mark. Because there's no great service we can really do that doesn't involve the gospel. And I and Mark really wants to attack those things because I think that God, that God certainly knew, I think Mark did too, that the church could get really easy caught up in doing nice things and not bringing the gospel in it. And yet Jesus will end this gospel, I remind you, by telling him, you want, to, you want to be a great servant? Do the one thing that is the greatest service. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And if that's our key word, well then therefore, the word that will be attached to it will be the word preach, of course. By the way, preach is not teach. Teach means I'm trying to give you information. Preach is putting you to a position to make a choice and seeking to sway that decision. <coughs> Marcia, chances are, preaches a great deal. Not just at the prison, but in her responsibility. If she ever has to stand before or go into court, she's preaching. She is giving testimony for the purpose of, of moving a depi- a, an opinion or a decision. We all do it in one way or another. All right. Are you ready? You feel like I'm almost already full and we haven't even started the gospel. The good news is there's only six chapters. I shouldn't say that's good news. Chapter 1, there's no lineage and there are no births. I should say there's no lineage and no nativity. It starts with, of course, the account of John the Baptist stepping up. His uniform, his diet, all those things. It tells us, by the way, when John speaks, and it's, there are a couple subtle things that are right in the beginning of this book, and then I can get a little bit more general, but I don't want you to miss these. In John, I'm sorry, John, in Mark 1.8, when John the Baptist is giving his testimony and saying, the one who comes after is mightier than me, who sandals straps, I'm not worthy to stoop down and on these. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
What's the rest of it? Good, there isn't any more. In other, in the other two gospel accounts, it'll say the Holy Spirit and fire. But in the Gospel of Mark, it's only the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the problem: we don't have to put those two together, and people go in all places. He healed baptized with the fire of the Holy Spirit. But it's important to recognize the two are actually contrasting each other. And the idea of it is, he's going to baptize you with one or the other. You're going to be immersed in one or the other. You're either going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, or you're going to be immersed in fire. Which one do you want to be immersed in? John doesn't have a problem telling you there is a judgment to come, but Jesus is the deciding factor in this, and you can go to one or the other. But in the Gospel of Mark, as a servant, he makes clear, because the whole point is the Gospel, the good news, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and you have that option. So, Unique to this gospel, of course. Uh, also, when he is baptized, you're probably aware of the fact, you know, this is immediately coming out of the water. So the heavens parting and spirit descending like it. There's the immediacy of God's empowering. But in 111, and this is an easy one to miss as well, I remind you, now see if you can, if you can follow me. And if I did this last week, but there are three statements recorded when Jesus is baptized. They're all statements from the Father, the voice coming down from heaven. One says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. One says, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And one says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. They sound like semantics, but they're fundamentally important. In one case, God is speaking directly to Jesus. In the other case, God is speaking to everyone else about Jesus. In the first case, this is my beloved son. Is he speaking to the people or to Jesus? The people. Hey, everyone, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. To Jesus or to the people? To the people. Hey, everyone, this is my beloved son. I'm really pleased with him. Him, in whom? Does that make sense? And the second account, although I'm putting them in a different order, just for clarity, you are my beloved son. Who is he speaking to? Jesus. In you, I am well pleased. Who is he speaking to? Jesus. So in the first one, hey, everybody, hey, everybody. And the second one, Jesus, Jesus. Does that make sense? And the third one, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What do we have there? You are my beloved son, that's to... In whom I am well pleased? The people. Now, put those three together for a moment and just see how well you do with king, servant, and man. Let's start with this one. Man. Which one of those three do you think is most appropriate for man? Which one do you think man needs to hear the most? Excellent. And that's exactly you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. That is to the man. And that's exactly what we need as a man. How about the king one? Excellent. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Let me just make sure you guys know, this is him. I'm pleased with him. All of that to... Does that make sense? So that leaves the middle one as the servant. As a servant... You need to have that relationship with God to go, hey, you're my son. 
But don't try to prove to everyone else that God's pleased with you. That's God's job to declare that. Just love him and serve him, and he'll take care of that part. Does that kind of make sense? So which one, then, would be the Mark one? You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Excellent. And that's exactly right. Well done, you guys. Does that kind of make sense? You kind of follow on that? <clears throat> so, after which, then, on... Uh, Jesus then, and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to speak clearly, trying to do this clearly. Jesus then goes and is tempted. He comes out, he starts to gather disciples. He goes with Jesus, I'm sorry, he goes with Peter to his mother-in-law's house in Capernaum. The woman is ill with a fever. He raises her up, and I love it, he serves her so she can serve others. And as that's the case, she then gets up, and you can see Jesus going, you're going to need to be well, Mom, because company's coming. And it starts, now we start looking at the multitude. And it tells us, in 132, it says, When evening and sun is set, and they brought to him all were sick, and those who were demons possessed. And it's actually 133. And it says, And the whole city was gathered together at the door. I remind you, we're only in chapter 1. And already, Jesus is in Capernaum. He started to heal. And the whole city shows up at your door. Now, I don't know how many are in Greenwich, but could you imagine? Suzanne's not feeling well. I bring Jesus home. Granted, she's not my mother-in-law, but just to say, I, and, I, and I bring Jesus home, and he goes, you know, hey, I, you know, that would actually be awesome. And he's like, what's wrong? And he's like, well, here's my list. And then, you know, he's like, and then he's like, raises her up. And it's like, good, because company's coming over. She's like, oy vey, who's coming over? And the entire area of Greenwich shows up at the door. You can imagine what that would be like. Well, he starts to see the need is that crazy right from the beginning. So, chapter 2, Jesus is gone. He, he takes care of business. He, by the way, seems to work way through evening. And then he re-enters Capernaum after that. And it says, and again he entered Capernaum. So he's reiterating that in chapter 2. It was heard that he was in the house. And it says, immediately many gathered together so there was no longer room to receive them. Not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Interesting. It already had gotten so crazy in Capernaum that there was no longer room even to be able to receive the people in. But it does tell us by two thirteen to seventeen that he called Matthew, and what does Matthew do? He has a he has a feast at his house, and it says many tax collectors and sinners sat with him because there were many that were there with him. And I think that's interesting. Again, what that tells us, it wasn't just the sick; it was the sinner, and they were coming in mass now to come to Jesus. By chapter 3, it tells us, by the way, Jesus now withdrew with his disciples to the sea. He withdrew, in other words, he's fleeing from the crowd already. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And it says, from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, those of Tyre and Sidon, that's like Lebanon now. And it says, and a great multitude um, was there. It says a great multitude. So when he heard about all the things that Jesus was doing, they came. He told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that the, he had many afflictions pressed about him. 
many who had afflictions pressed about him and to touch him. Now, notice how crazy it's gotten by this point. Now, in chapter 1, the whole city showed up at the door. By chapter 2, there's so many showing up, there's no, you, can't even, you can't even address them all by that point. But by chapter 3, they were so pressing into Jesus, not just from, from Capernaum, but now we're talking about all the way up to Scotland, and they're starting to show up. And as they all start showing up, Jesus is at this point says, you guys, you know what? You guys need to have a boat ready for me. I'm going to get crushed. He is the same one who's serving. But now the multitude got so great that they're pressing in on him on every side. And by the way, as that's the case, Jesus tells us that he gets anoints 12. As he anoints the 12, two of them, of course, are called Boanerges. Does anyone remember what Boanerges means? Excellent. Sons of Thunder. Beautiful. And he said he appointed 12 that they could have the power to heal and cast out demons. And then it says, by 3.20, it says the multitude came together again, and there were so many of them, so that they could not even as much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, who are his own people? Excellent. It's his mom and brothers. Because we know that, because as we read through the rest of chapter 3, we'll find out his mom and his brothers show up, and someone says, hey, your mom's at the door. And, and remember, she's thinking he's crazy at this point. And he says, just to make things better, who is my brother? Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? There are those who do the will of God. And you can see mom going, yep, that confirms that the guy lost his marble. You know, and it's like the whole point was is that as a servant, the need becomes so great. Now, the difference between Jesus and every one of us is that Jesus can serve all those people. We can't. And he will ordain specifically where he wants us so that we can make a difference in people's lives. But the same Jesus that serves through me serves through Marcy at the prison. Serves through Susanna. She's, she's sitting down with women. And it's like the same one who serves through me is the one who serves through Bruno when someone's coming to know the Lord. And, and I serves through you know, Daniel. He's teaching. And the reason I say these things is that Jesus isn't going to run out. We are. But because when you start serving like this, people are going to think you're out of your mind. I mean, at this point, let's face it, Jesus is about to get thronged, so he has a boat set, because once he gets into the water, he's a little safer from the crowd. But also, at this point, he came and eats. That's a pretty crazy... And I write, we're only in chapter 3, and this is how heavy it gets. Now, what do you do in a situation like that? You get on your face and you ask Jesus, what part's yours, what part is it? And for the, for the courage to do the right part, but the humility not to do the part that isn't yours. Because I'll be honest, often I take things and it's totally out of pride. It's, it's just a lack of humility where I'm like, you know what, I just really need to not do that. Because there's a part of me that still thinks I'm 20, but that part of me is not my body. I wish it was. All right. Chapter 4. Are you following me so far? Jesus is confronted by family. Is that the top one? Or... Um, chapter 3, it says Jesus is confronted by... Yeah, by family. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm sorry. Okay. Jesus is confronted by Pharisees. Oh. I'm sorry. Chapter 3. After the healing on the Sabbath, there is the opposition, and that causes Jesus to withdraw. Oh. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry, because I didn't say it. I'm sorry. That's 3, verse 7. 
And it's interesting because it really does seem like Jesus is withdrawing more from that right now than it is the crowds, though he will try to do that as well. By chapter 4. Again, he got into a boat again to teach at the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him. It wasn't just a multitude. It was a great multitude. So he got into a boat, sat on it on the sea. Jesus is not going to get crushed here. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught him in parables. Remember those kingdom parables? How in Matthew there were seven. It's important to note, actually, in this particular one, there are really only three. There's the one of the four soils. The second one is unique, which is that you plant a seed and it does all of this growth. It buds out, it brings the stalk and the blades and the, and the, and the head, and finally it's worth harvesting. Unique to the Gospel of Mark. And the idea of it is, you don't do any of that. You plant the seed, and then the magic happens. And I love that, telling servants, hey, you know, you plant the seed, and then you trust, because it's really all you can do. You can, you can water, you can, you, know, you can seek to tend to it, but in the end of it, you can't make it grow. That's the magic, if you will. And then the third is the one of the mustard seed, interesting in that. Well, if that's the case, well, now, when he left the multitude, they took him, you know, he took him along in a boat where he was, and other little boats were also with him. And by the way, as he leaves the crowd, remember, Jesus, he's always seeking to get these one-on-ones. And yet, as he's seeking to get these one-on-ones, everywhere he goes, it's crowds instead. And as it's the case, uh, Jesus, by the way, as he's healing these people, he's telling them, don't tell people that, that you're healed. Well, you know, don't tell them that I did it. And he goes, and they do it anyways, and as a result of that, Jesus can't even go into the cities because everywhere he goes, he's getting thronged now. And you understand, the reason Jesus was telling these people this wasn't because it was reverse psychology, because he thought, if he told them, no, they do it. That's a weird thing for Jesus to play on a rebellious nature. But rather, it's because Jesus really wants the one-on-one with people. And for this to happen, for people to run around and keep bringing others like that, Jesus isn't getting that. But Jesus leaves the multitude because he's going to cross the sea, which sets the scene for the man of the tombs. And that's the point here. It's like this whole thing now, he will leave that crowd, the mass, and we read great multitude, the mass multitude, so that he can go and minister to the man of the tombs. And I love it. As again, Mark focuses on one of those guys. And a guy that's in that much need doesn't need a big crowd around him. And Jesus is going to go after this guy. And this is what I love. There's a humility in that. What person in his right mind, if he's proud, is going to go and say, there's somebody in need here, but I'm with a whole lot of people. I'm going to leave this to go to that. But throughout Scripture, you find that the people that God brings up often do that. And says, you know what? If this is where the crowd is, if this is where the need is, I want to go where the need is. And whether that is a big festival where other people are already doing it, but there's a small group of kids somewhere in Ireland that need to hear about the gospel that aren't, or whether that's a big fellowship somewhere, but there's other people who aren't hearing the truth. Philip, in the gospel, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, is in the middle of a huge revival in Samaria. But God tells him, you know what, you need to actually leave because I've got an appointment with somebody in the middle of the desert near on the way to Gaza. And the guy leaves. We don't read of any big argument. 
he arranged to go and get it to reach that one guy. And, did for, and that one guy starts a revolution, by the way. The whole story of Ethiopia, to some degree, revolves around that particular individual. It's a pretty radical thought. Anyways, with all of that said, Jesus then goes and ministers. Chapter 5, <coughs> Jesus delivers the man of the tombs, and he's going to cross over again. As he delivers the man of the tombs, and of course we have a great deal of account of what's going on with him. By verse 24, it tells us that when Jesus went back, by the way, that it says that a great multitude followed him and thronged him. So even though Jesus was gone for a little bit, it didn't stop them from thronging him upon his return. In fact, I, the word here seems to be even more intensely so. The idea is like, you know, Jesus was gone, and they're like, oh my goodness, you're back. And with desperation, they're lunging at him. So, Jesus is going to minister to a um, religious leader's daughter. On the way, a woman, of course, reaches out, touches the hem of his garment, and immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And then Jesus then says, who touched me? And of course, in this gospel account, where the, he almost gets rebuked by his disciples, and don't you see everybody thronging you? This is when you're going to ask about one particular person. It's amazing, because Jesus didn't just leave the crowd for one person. Jesus would look for the one person even in the crowd. And in a case like this, that's a pretty radical thing. Now, he felt the power leave him. We'll see that in, in a Luke, which is a good gospel for that. But then he's on his way, I remind you. And one of the things a good servant we learn is, is that we need to be available in route, in route, and not just uh, trying to get there and be so pragmatic. Because this was one of the greatest things, you know, and it happened on the way. He gets into the room, he speaks to the girl, and he says, Talithakumi. And of course, that's translated, little girl, arise. You guys, we're learning how to be servants here through this. In chapter 6, Jesus receives the blows of being rejected by his hometown, Nazareth, and he gets the news of John the Baptist's death. And at a point like that, he wants to call his disciples away. Wouldn't you want to reach for you at a moment like that? That horrible news kind of hits you? And yet, even in all of that, it tells us that he tells them, come aside to your, by yourself to a deserted place and rest a while. For there are many coming and going, and they don't even have time to eat. And Jesus knows what that's like. He's like, you realize, these people now understand, these people are not just thronging him to get touched by him. These people are actually hanging on his words. They're listening to his teaching. And as Jesus is doing this, he's like, you know, these guys have been listening to me and hanging out with me. They really haven't even had time to eat. As a result of that, of course, <clears throat> Jesus is ultimately going to help with that. God bless you. As a result of that, he'll feed the 5,000. That is, by the way, I would say a fairly large multitude, wouldn't you? That's 5,000 men in their family. And then he crosses over again to Gennesaret, anchors there. When they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized them, and they ran throughout the whole surrounding region, began to carry on beds those who were sick with whatever they heard, wherever they heard he was, and wherever he entered, whether it was villages or cities or the country, they laid their sick in marketplaces and begged them that he might just, they could just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched them were made well. Jesus couldn't go into the smaller towns, the villages, 
because there they were going to meet him. He went into the big cities and he wasn't anonymous there. Or he went out into the far country and they even met him there. Those are kind of the three places. Let's face it, when you're popular in one, sometimes you're not popular in another. You're going to be popular in the country. And then you go to the city and ain't no one going to know you. Or you could be big in the city and then you go to the country and people are like, who that? Who, who are you? And I love the fact that like, no matter where Jesus goes, there is no place for him to get solace. Well, but chapter 7, his opposition grows. Jesus then heads far north to the area of, of the Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon, and then south to Decapolis, by the way. So Jesus now has headed into Gentile territory. And it is in that area, Decapolis meaning the ten Roman cities that are basically on the other side of the Jordan, heading all the way up around the Sea of Galilee, uh, which, by the way, would be the area where the man of the tombs would be, a deaf mute is brought to him. He took him aside and the multitude put his fingers in his ears, spat, and touched his tongue. Now, the problem is, who's his? There's two different ways to look at this. Because <coughs> then he looked up to heaven and he said that awesome word, Ephasa, which means be opened. So here it is. They bring to this guy and he can't speak and he can't hear. So Jesus is looking at the guy. Now, his eyes, it says, and he stuck his fingers in his ears and then he spit and touched his tongue. Now, it all depends on what the his is because it's actually not as clear. So in one case, Jesus went, Jesus looking at a man who couldn't speak or hear and go, Yesatha. That's the difference. So that's just a consider. Either way, he's seriously serving him. I, to be honest, I tend to lean towards the second, but that's because I'm kind of a tender kind of guy and stuff like that. I just kind of see Jesus having this one-on-one with him and look at him going, can't hear somebody. Can't speak, can you? Well, let's take care of that. And that's, I just think these are the greatest moments of Jesus' joy on earth, are these beautiful moments where he just watches someone for a moment and he's just, just the two of them and the world is the world just spinning around him at the moment. I want to be like that as a servant. You know, where when you're serving somebody, the rest of the world can wait. This moment needs to be this. What is the idea? By eight now... The multitude, it tells us, and it's being very great. And it tells us, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat. And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? As the multitude's following him, ultimately Jesus will then turn and feed the 4,000. That's Gentiles, by the way. The 5,000 men were Jewish, the 4,000 men were Gentiles. By chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. And as he as he's transfigured, of course, everything seems to change by the time he gets back down to the bottom. First of all, at this point now, the guys start talking about who is the greatest. I imagine it's probably the three that went with him. So he says, whoever desires first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he uses a term that is exclusive to the Gospel of Mark. An interesting term he'll use on three different occasions in 944, 46, and 48, 
where he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Their worm. How's that? What's the worm? I should check that. But I think I just know that. Uh, let's see. Let me make sure of that because I don't want to give you, I don't want to lead you astray. <coughs> It is there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is really fundamental, by the way. I was speaking to a gentleman on Tuesday at the afternoon study. He was like, I really don't believe in hell. I'm like, why? Because it's hard for me to actually get the idea of an eternal punishment. I don't think the Bible really says it. And I think you just sort of cease to exist. That just seems so much more merciful. And I'm like, yeah, well, what do you do with this phrase that's used three different times? Where their worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. And he's like, oh, hmm, we're going to need to think about that. Hmm. Now, why would he. Yeah, why do you think that would be so important in the Gospel of Mark? Because remember what the key word was? Gospel. And that motivates us. We don't want anyone to go there. It's not to threaten them. It's to motivate us. Remember, I remind you, this is the one about servants. So as a servant, I'm like, man, I want to, I want to, if I knew that place, and I had a good view of it, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, oh man, you do not want to go there. Well, by chapter 10, something unique to the gospel. Are you guys following me? Have I just, have I killed you by this point? Is it helpful to be able to fill in little slots at least, you know? You kind of know where you're at. In chapter 10, by the way, it's really important, unique to the Gospel of Matthew, we have a rundown in regards to Jesus visiting the temple and clearing it. In the Gospel of Mark, we see it as a calculated event. Jesus comes on Palm Sunday on his triumphal entry. He looks around the temple, leaves, and comes back the next day to clear the temple. And if this is in this Gospel uniquely, what that tells me is the clearing of the temple was an act of service. It wasn't an act of rage. And then he would say, whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life. And by the way, you know who he's saying that to? What tells us this? He came to the region of Judah, the other side of Jordan, and multitudes were gathered to him again. And that's what he taught him. He tends basically to have the... Uh, he tends to take the multitude and teaches them so they could have the one-on-one and to transform them. Now, chapters 11 through 14... It's the last week of Jesus. As you can see, Mark doesn't spend a tremendous amount of time on it, but he does point out a couple quick things, and one I just want to make clear, and now we're almost done, where the girl is actually anointing him in Bethany, and the disciples start to rebuke her. 
And Jesus then rebukes them. And then surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be a memorial to her. Jesus, as you know, aware of, has the Last Supper and is uh, not, as, not as brought up here as we're going to see in Luke. It's really brought up in Luke. And then Jesus is going to go to trial. As Jesus goes to trial, we see the turning of the multitude. In verse 8 it says, Then the multitude, crying aloud, asked for Pilate to do what he'd always done for him. Of course, he's like, Well, who do you want me to release? And of course, it tells us in verse 11 that the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they would rather release Barabbas to him. And the same multitude that Jesus has fed, cared for, transformed, taught, and loved on, <coughs> turn on him. And by the way, at the one moment when Pilate actually could have used them to set Jesus free, even over the religious leaders. But let's face it, that wasn't going to happen. It was the will of the Father for Jesus to go to the cross for us. We can be thankful for that. But why do you think the crowd did that? I mean, after all of this that they had experienced, why did they do that? Do we know that it was exactly the same people? I mean, we, just, we just know that it's interesting. There's one thing that haunts me. We can't say with absolute confidence except for the fact that there's a definite article. It doesn't say a multitude. It says the multitude. And that's the hard part to get past. Yeah, it could be otherwise. But it is the multitude. So it's a multitude we have already somehow known of. But it does say that it was the religious leaders who stirred them up. Mm-hmm. And might I say, to be honest, my take on it, it's just an opinion, it's fear. That even though they had followed Jesus and seen all of it, they were still afraid of the government as they know it. It's still the government as far as they're concerned. I mean, when I hear about people up in Scotland and other places that seem like they live in constant fear of the government, it's so much easier to fear that than it is to trust God, I guess, in some cases. It's really sad. We've been in the place, to be honest, where God's just had to pull through for us. You've been through it with us. And God's had to show himself bigger than the government. You know, and If God didn't move, we wouldn't be here. But if God was going to move, we were going to stay. And we're having to study the result of that. Who was that in mind? Ultimately, of course, Jesus... Praise God, though dying on the cross, death resurrect as promised. And then the book ends with this in chapter 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And it tells us this. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe, it doesn't say not baptized, will not be will be condemned. And listen to this word, don't miss this. And these signs will follow those who believe. <coughs> in my name they'll cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick, take up servants, if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
He says, when a person believes, these are the things that will follow behind them. It doesn't say that every person is going to experience every one of those, but he says, these are things you're going to see in the wake of believers. Have we seen, by the way, people speaking in different tongues in the book of Acts? Absolutely. Have we seen them casting out demons? Yes. Acts uh, chapter 16, we see that. What about picking up a serpent and not dying from it? Yeah, actually, we see that as well when Paul is shipwrecked on Malta. How about the drinking something deadly and it won't hurt them? Well, I don't know about that one. I don't recall seeing that in the book of Acts. So, uh, we've put poison in all of your drinks tonight. We were just kind of excited to see how that fit. No, we have not. It's not. We're not one of those kind of clubs. Uh, anyway. Yeah, that was just kind of fun. Okay, and finally, it tells us in verse 19, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. This is one of the two of the four Gospels where Jesus is clearly shown as ascending. Sat down at the right hand of God. But they went out, and guess what they did? They preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the words through the accompanying signs. Amen. Do you know what those things were? They were accompanying signs. Their part was, go preach the message. God brought the backup. And this is why we can't say, God, do this or do that, because he knows what backup is necessary to convince the people. In essence, think about it, you're part of the evidence pool, but you're the witness to testify. After that, God, being the attorney, being the barrister, being the solicitor, knows what evidence he can bring up to convince the heart of the jury of the, of the people in front of you. So you're testifying, you're preaching the gospel, and then God says, I know what evidence they're going to need to see to sway them. The good news is, you don't have to be the, you know, the judge, by praise God for that, and you don't even have to be the barrister or the solicitor in this. What you need to be in this is evidence, and available for him at his disposal if he wants to use it. Now, he may use, he may use Marcia, which is kind of fun, using those terms, uh, to actually preach the gospel, and then he actually may bring in you know, Maureen as evidence behind that. Chances are it'll be not you know it'll be like Marcy will say something, and then what will happen is God will bring in Maureen as some form of testimony in it, and they'll ask Maureen, did you collaborate with Marcia because what she said and what you're you know what you're living are completely backing each other up, and you're like, no, that's actually Jesus at work. That's all. So here it is in a nutshell. As you see, Jesus is like he starts his ministry, and the multitude shows up. The whole city shows up, and then it's. And then it gets crazy. They come from everywhere and they throng him. They're going to crush him. He gets in a boat. He can't eat. He can't sleep in essence. It's like no matter what the case is, the need is everywhere. He tries to go out into the wilderness. They're going to find him there. In a village, in the city, in the country. They find him everywhere. But he's not going to stop. He's even, even his mom and his brother have come to rescue him from all of this. But Jesus isn't going to stop. But even in all of that, he is seeking to get those one-on-ones and even though there are a million or whatever, over however hundred million or billion people that are calling themselves Christians, he still has a problem finding a time for a one-on-one with you anytime you want. And we can praise God for that. But in that, may God motivate us that we wouldn't want to see even our worst enemy in a place where their worm does not die or where the fire is not quenched, but rather that we would go and preach the gospel. That's the whole point of it. All right. Are there any questions? We've gone through the entire book of Mark. Yeah, that's a really fun one. As a matter of fact, I was going to do a, 
but I hesitated because I don't want to. I didn't want to bring it up unless it was necessary. But it is important to note that there are a couple manuscripts that were pulled up. These codexes that they have that don't have those final verses. It ends with verse eight, which is the craziest way to end it. First of all, because in essence, what it says is they were these women were told and they didn't tell anyone. Yeah, wow, that's a great way to end it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not the case. So then you have to start pulling up other things. And uh, if you give me a couple minutes during the break, what I'll do is I'll try to pull up some of the people who even quoted from it. But basically, you have about 17 different people who have quoted in the first few centuries, who have quoted from the, the last section of the Gospel of Mark, which would have been before the time they think that it was added, if that makes sense. The particular uh, codexes that they're pulling from are in the 500s A.D., so, uh, before the 500s AD, clearly people were quoting that text, even in the first century afterwards. So that's what, but there are texts that, are, that have those verses in it. That's kind of how it plays out. But then, if you actually have a dynamic version, sometimes they do that, because the oldest manuscript was the one they found in Alexandria. Remember where all the smart people come from? But there are people quoted as, as saying, by the way, historians, that, that they were literally cutting out parts of the text because the people who actually were overseeing a lot of the manuscripts were Gnostics. They were actually of a cult. So they were kind of doing, if you'll pardon me for saying, like what the J. Dubs have done with their Bible. They cut out particular portions or bend them in ways that work for them. But that's the oldest that they found. But the oldest is still within 50 years of the other ones, all in the 500s AD. So none of them are extant manuscripts of the, you know, from its time. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, good question. Let me just say it this way. My God is sovereign and he knows how to get what he wants in Scripture and Scripture. So, and I am absolutely, I'm completely and absolutely convinced that's part of the original text. So. All right. Well, let's, let's... And I really, I think if someone wrote it after the book of Acts, they would have put other things at the end of it than the things they put. Like, what's the drinking poison thing? And would you really put that if you were writing it after Acts? Would you just pick specific things from the book of Acts? You know, I think it's one of the reasons the Lord had that put in. So you'd be like, well, I don't remember reading that. So, well, unless there's a new addition to the book of Acts. Oh, sorry. Right, Lord, thank you so much for this gospel. And Lord, in the rest of our life as we read through it, let it teach us how to become servants. We recognize the, the need is vast. And the call is immediate. So, Lord, make us faithful to be immediate in our response. But also, Lord, to not cower in fear at the size of the need. Because it's not too much for you, just for us. So give us wisdom, Lord, to know what part's ours and which part isn't. Give us courage to take the part that is. And give us humility to not take the part that isn't. But make us the greatest servants, Lord. Good and faithful. In Jesus' name. <coughs>
It's also the longest, by the way, it is the longest book in the entire New Testament. Gospel of Luke. Uh, very, very, very big issue of that, remember that walk down, those three sections, the, the gelding ministry, the walk down, and then the time in that last week, really emphasizes the walk down. Remember, it focuses on Jesus. The, the theme is Jesus' man. As Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew, what was the focal point? The hill, excellent. In Mark, what was the focal point? The crowd. Luke's focal point will be the table. I want to meet you. God knows a man. And uh, <laughs> a fifth of the entire gospel involves food. As a matter of fact, for what it's worth, a fifth of not only this, but the, the book of Acts is about 20% of both of them involves food. I think that's really interesting. So, you're going to see him, and so you're going to see him at the table, and a lot of it uh, is going to involve uh, food. 35% of the material, as far as count, not word count, but subject matter. Does that make a difference? Do you see what I mean by the difference? Of the subjects, 35% of them are original. And so, the, these are the original parables, or I should say unique. These are the unique narratives and teachings. But go to the bottom part, and this is where we'll just bring it to close. Notice what says things to look for as you read. Look for the humanist factors. Things like birth, hungers, fatigue, the things that you just kind of go. In other words, when we read Mark, you're like being sensitive. I want to be a servant. Teach me how to be a servant in Mark. But it's like, Jesus, I want to know what you were like as a man. Because I'm a human being that seeks your power. I want to know what it's like to be a, a really godly man. Luke's your book. So, the humanness of suffering in this book, we'll see. The human, by the way, one of the things I really love about this book is he really emphasizes the lowly. As a matter of fact, the only other book that challenges Mark to a tax contest, as far as tax collectors, is the Gospel of Luke, because he really focuses on these low, the, low, the people that are kind of the underdogs. And I love that. It's a very human quality in that sense. So they're very highlighted. Um, obviously, the necessity of the Spirit's power and the human necessity of prayer. But also, and I know that someone like Hugo, this probably will stand out naturally, but the things that involve food. You know, I mean, how many times does a Pharisee invite him to dinner or to lunch or to Shabbat dinner? You'll find that a lot. There's a big emphasis, of course, if there's one table that's going to be a really important, kind of a highlighted table, what would that table be? Which feast or which meal? Passover. That Passover right before he's arrested. So you're going to get more details to that one than you will in the others for good reason. But the Passover as a celebration, well, it really is going to be almost the entire book of John. But as far as that specific meal, sitting there and watching it, Luke's going to really give you the details. Now we're going to get things in John we don't get, like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Don't you think that's interesting? that that's only in the Gospel of John, which portrays Jesus as God. Is that a fascinating thought? Don't you think that it would have been easier to put that in Mark? And so this is the part, and this is the kind of stuff I really love for me. These are the rabbits, these are the trails I go on. Or I look at that and I think, All right, God, why would you want me to know that as, for you as God versus servant? Because it's like God's not asking something of me he wouldn't, wasn't willing to do first. 
That's at least the trail. That's what my trail I'm wound up with. So, so in Luke, it's a longer book now, and more words than even Matthew or John. But it is a, it is such a gorgeous book. So my suggestion is, if you're going to read it in three days, and then try it again. I'm not saying that you need to do it, but if you were, read up to 9:51 the first day, and that's the Galilean part. And then from 9.52 to the middle of 19, to the, tri- to the triumphal entry, because that's the walk down. Because I want you to get a feel for what Jesus is addressing. Because if I were to say it in this sense, that it's the kinsman redeemer. It's not just Jesus being human, but he had to be human to redeem us as the kinsman redeemer, like the story of Ruth. Where he had to be one of us. So you're going to see this whole saving the lost is a real focal, a kind of focal point in this particular book. But it's like the one thing that we keep going back to in Matthew is the hill. The one thing we keep coming back to, would you agree in Mark, we keep coming back to the crowds? And one thing we're going to keep coming back to is the table in Luke. So uh, does that make sense as far as what, you know, and I'm just trying to kind of salt the meat before we cook it kind of thing. So, all right, well, I want to pray for you. And... Uh, Considering we, if we would have started right on time and it was my fault, we would actually be ending right on time. Just the same. All right, are there any questions in regards to the Gospel of Luke? All right. All right, guys. I'm having a lot of fun watching you learn. Yeah. You, know, so. you were like, you know, at the beginning you were kind of like, uh, and then there was a point when during the test you were like, you started sitting forward a little bit and you were like, hey, I'm getting this. Right. Well, Lord, I want to thank you that you've given us minds and then you've given us the ability to retain things in them. And I want to praise you, Lord, for the ability, Lord, to sit out on this beautiful day in the sun and just pray and to seek your faith and to sit with people I love so much, like Daniel and, and Hugo. And thank you, Lord, that Daniel wore this bright orange shirt so that from all the way on the other side of the park we could see him, Lord, and know where he was. And Lord... Uh, I just want to thank you that we can sit in here and eat food and enjoy each other and feast on your word. Lord, while we read Luke, really minister to us, Lord. Let it be beautiful and profound. And may we, Lord, just feast with you. Lord, show us how to be human that love you. In Jesus' name.